Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian Podcast. This one entitled, What is Conservative History? The date, June 2021, and my name is Bell Avis. In George F. Wells' fantastic book, A Conservative Sensibility, the author lays down his vision of what, as conservatives, we wish to conserve. In Wills' estimation, we seek to conserve the founding, the natural rights in the Declaration, and the concept of limited government and separation of powers within the Constitution. Now, I will not fully elucidate Wills' writing here. Instead, get the book and see what beautiful prose is made. I like to think I have some skill as a writer, but there is definitely some Salieri-type envy when I gaze upon Wills' Mozartian words. But this begs the question, If conservatism itself is a preservation of the founding, then what is conservative history? I would define it with a few simple phrases. Conservative history is the placement of facts before opinions, of detective work before a preset belief, of letting numbers, primary documentation, and full context drive the narrative rather than political expediency. At the founding of Western history itself, we have two exemplars of these differentiations. Herodotus, knowing his audience of Greeks, made the histories into a preset narrative of Greeks equal good, Persians equal bad. Like a classical Greek version of Marvel movies of today, the villain must be seen as so powerful, so overwhelming, that only the most courageous, intelligent, virtuous, brave, skillful, and determined hero could possibly overcome them. In the final edition of the Avengers movie Endgame, the villain Thanos declares that he is, quote, inevitable, unquote. One could almost see Herodotus putting the same word into Xerxes, the Persian king's mouth. Charlotte Higgins, author of It's All Greek to Me, writing for The Guardian in 2009, notes of the father of history, quote, his nine-book history of the Persian wars is gossipy, discursive, outrageous, frequently inaccurate, and always brilliantly entertaining, unquote. Yet Higgins gets why he was so essential and garnered his epitaph. Quote, he was the first of the waves of Ionian Greek intellectuals from the Aegean coast of what is now Turkey, that's Ionia, to present a rationalizing view of the world that removed the gods from the limelight and put human actions center stage. In particular, he was the first to write an account of the historical causation of a set of world-changing events, in this case, the Persian Wars of the 480s, unquote. Many see in Homer's work, which was probably written four or five hundred years before Herodotus, the patine of history. And there was a real Troy, but often in Homer's works, the gods themselves appear to change this or that event, and of course, It was their vanity that set the whole Trojan War in motion. Higgins notes their notable absence in Herodotus, but also, quote, bearded priestesses, gold-harvesting giant ants. I love that one. Savage Scythians who wear coats made from human scalps. Of course, it is all these hilarious details that make Herodotus such a good read, unquote. A simple calculation taken from the histories puts the Persian host at over one million combat soldiers, a number that not even Napoleon could match and was not seen really until World War I. And of course, at Thermopylae, the Greek counterpart is 300. Not 300,000, literally 300 versus this million-person army. 
The Persians were the army that could drink rivers dry and possess cavalry alone to eat out a region in a few days. But remember, the greater the Persian menace, the greater the Greek victory. The counterpart to Herodotus's propaganda style is Thucydides and his The Peloponnesian War, written around 50 years later. What is startling is the dispassion Thucydides takes in his writings. Aside from the funeral of Pericles, there's very little sort of passion endemic in this work. Classicist Victor Davis Hanson calls him, quote, a hard-eyed pragmatist whose judgments derive from first-hand experience, unquote, and noted that he knew nothing about peace studies, conflict resolution theory, God's will, or the United Nations, but could declare for all time that people go to war over, quote, honor, fear, and self-interest, unquote. The Peloponnesian War is not a perfect work by any stretch of the imagination. It is not written in a straightforward linear style. It bounces from place to place and time to time. And some of the descriptions, especially relating to the Athenian politician and general turned traitor, turned back to politician and general and traitor again, Alcibiades, sometimes seems a little larger than life. But these concepts aside, it is evident in this work that Thucydides aimed not to advance a preset narrative, please a constituency, or sell more books, or impose his own political beliefs on events. And keep in mind, Thucydides was not just some bystander, he was an Athenian general. So one would think that his narrative would favor the Athenians, but it really doesn't. Again, it's just kind of a straightforward descriptor of what he viewed and what he believed had happened during those periods of time. Instead, Thucydides was after the war facts and would create a story from them, not the other way around. Higgins notes, quote, he wrote a detailed, stern, and ultra-serious account, unquote. So how does this work with our own history? How does this apply? Let me make a statement. The United States is the most successful and prosperous nation in the history of humanity. There it is. There's their preset narrative, right? There is an incredible number of people and institutions who would actually provide conjecture to that statement within the United States today. But this isn't a preset narrative. I did not simply pull out my old glory flag, look out my window and declare such a thing. First, I started with one simple number. How about GDP? The United States GDP is the highest in the world and has been for 150 years. I compared our society to all that have come before. I have looked at our lifespans and our healthcare numbers and per capita income. There are isolated nations with some higher numbers, but we are a republic of 330 million, not 3 million. We have a heterogeneous population in a way that, say, Norway cannot imagine. The one area most cited by progressives is African Americans' current wealth and income, which are certainly lower than any other racial group within the United States. But when we compare African-descended peoples living in France, Germany, or England, and then include all Africans living in the continent, our numbers soar. I did not start off with the concept of American exceptionalism and then cherry-pick facts to fit that narrative. Instead, I looked at the body of facts available and the history available and then came up with that story. The conservative historian believes strongly in a statement issued by the American philosopher Jay-Z in his Reminder Song. Quote, men lie, women lie, numbers don't, 
unquote. Whenever I quote this, I'm greeted by a, a harumph and sort of knowing visage saying, after these realize that this is all the Jay-Z I really know, they tend to think, oh, Bell, you are so naive about the numbers. But not really. Numbers obviously can be faked, massaged, even changed. But the underlying nature of, of numbers, especially something like GDP, wins out in the long run. Enron had a great narrative, but the numbers did not support their story. Bernie Madoff was a hero to his investors, but ended up dying in a prison cell. In the late Roman Imperial period, Roman emperors, especially after 180 CE, continued to debase the currency in a vain attempt to get their denarii to stretch further and further. The 13th century Mongols, they conquered China, but in three generations, their Wuhan dynasty, supported by around 100,000 Mongols, began to look a whole lot like China, whose numbers were in the tens of millions. The Chinese basically simply absorbed the Mongols. The 20th century Weimar Republic of Germany kept the printing presses rolling and rolling until Germans were bringing wheelbarrows of cash to the supermarket. And this inflation opened the way for an obscure Austrian corporal to later assume power. In the long run, numbers win out, but we have to know which numbers matter and which don't. And in this case, GDP, per capita income, and wealth, per citizen of the United States, over the last 150 years wins out. The United States economic numbers are simply the best. I have said that Barack Obama was underrated for his feral cunning, but completely overrated for his eloquence, words, and intellect. One of my favorite parlor games with liberals is to ask them for a memorable Obama phrase that talks to the nation's positivity. Something like a new birth of freedom, or the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, or ask not what your country can do for you, or finally a shining city on the hill. When asked this of uh, Obama supporters, you get crickets, possibly hope and change. But if one does not see that phrase as pure banality, one is barely sentient. Instead, we remember, cling to guns and religion. I am a better speechwriter than my speechwriters. Or, if you like your doctor, you keep your doctor. Yet there is one phrase that does have relevance for the conservative historian. On April 4th, 2009, Obama said, quote, I believe in American exceptionalism, just as I suspect that the Brits believe in British exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism, unquote, for now. He took a lot of flag for that statement, but what is often left out, especially for right-wing narrative purposes, was what Obama said next. Quote, and if you think of our current situation, the United States remains the largest economy in the world. We have an unmatched military capability, and I think that we have a core set of values that are enshrined in our Constitution, in our body of law, in our democratic practices, in our belief in free speech and equality, which, though imperfect, are exceptional, unquote. I always wish that people would quote that full speech in that full context, because here you have a very left-wing president who basically is capturing it. In these few words, Obama captured the nature of what does make America exceptional. All of those points that he just laid out are things that a conservative historian would look into, probe, find facts, look for primary documentation, and then see what narrative comes out of this. In other words, it's kind of what Obama just did there. He laid out five or six facts about America, 
and then, only then concluded that America is, in fact, exceptional. Of course, the left part is right, is often left out, and right-wing provocateurs leave it out purposely because it does not fit with the narrative of Obama disliking his nation. And it is rarely cited by the left because they do not like the Constitution. They think the economy is classist and unequal and frown on free speech. I find that interesting that in both sides are in agreement to leave that part out about the fact that Obama basically believes we are exceptional, or at least he did back in 2009. I have sometimes thought that somewhere down way, way deep, Obama almost got it. What makes America exceptional? But as noted, he was ever the politician and never really the statesman. So it was his fate during his presidency, and more so as we are seeing in his post-term life, to move ever leftward and away from that narrative of 2009. Even Obama, of his wife, by the way, I do not speculate. She doesn't like America lays out a case that a conservative historian would find helpful. Our economy, our military, our governing documents all laid out making the case. And another factoid, here you go. 84% of people agree with the statement, quote, I would rather be a citizen of America than any other country in the world, unquote. Do the Latinos currently streaming across our southern border believe the same of their nations? In a 2021, that survey may yield a different number. But again, for the conservative historian, the real question is net immigration versus American net emigration. All of these people denigrating our nation and extolling the virtue of other nations never seem keen to, you know, actually go to those better lands. It was one thing for Bernie Sanders to honeymoon in the Soviet Union, but he did not stay there. And after all, why would he? He has three residences today. Who but a Politburo member could have such a dream under, let's say, the likes of Brezhnev? And Obama is not even wrong in the initial statement. When one views international tennis, forget the Olympics, which is nationalism on steroids, one sees the flags in the audience. When Novak Djokovic takes the court, you see the Serbian flags in evidence. Or when Stefano Tsitsipas, who is only half Greek, the white and light blue are almost always in evidence. These citizens believe in the exceptionalism of their nations as seen through the visage of professional athletes. It is even evident when one's actual relationship with a country is a bit suspect. Naomi Osaka, and more on her in a different podcast, her mother is Japanese, and that is the flag upon which she competes. But in interviews, she sounds more at home in California than in Kyoto. The conservative historian cannot take, though, one two, or three of these facts and determine exceptionalism. American men have not had a top five tennis player in decades. Now, obviously, the women are the exception, see S. Williams, but that does not mean that Serbia is a superior nation to the United States. If you were to judge purely on men's tennis, yes, they would be more exceptional than us. But again, that is what the conservative historian rejects. We do not take that single point and then try to spin the narrative from that to fit our beliefs, our worldviews. The troubling aspect of history, as it is taught today, is that it represents the polar opposite of the conservative historian ethos. Take one or two single facts and spin the narrative from that point. In progressive history, Serbia would be the only nation based on that singular fact of Djokovic. Well, we have John Isner. I would then counter that we do have Serena Williams, and Serbia has no female in the top 20. Ha! Gotcha! Ours is superior, as the minions of Khan would say in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. 
This is ludicrous, of course, and yet 5,000 school districts have signed up for the 1619 Project, which takes a single bookkeeper account from a single plantation and then makes the case that the antebellum slave economy of the South was capitalism. Or the left's favorite classist stat, billionaires own 80% of all wealth. Therefore, in their view, we are a nation of the super rich and a bunch of impoverished people. There's their gender argument. Women occupy only 30 CEO seats in the Fortune 500, so we must be a misogynistic nation. And of course, black wealth and per capita income are a fraction of whites, so we are a prejudiced nation that imposes systemic racism on a subset of our people. That's how progressive history works. Now, when other facts are introduced into these narratives, for example, per capita, American wealth is second in the world behind only Switzerland, that women disproportionately stay home with their children and are less apt to be the full-time working parent, which takes them off of the career track, which also affects why there are less women in CEO suites. And by the way, that fact is even starting to change. And They dismiss other factors affecting black income and wealth, such as the correlation between two-person households and single-parent households, that up and down the line, the more an ethnicity has two-parent households, the greater the wealth and per capita income. The more that they have single-parent households, the less per capita wealth and income that they have. Now, these arguments are all dismissed as classist, misogynist, or racist, thus ending any argument that does not fit with their narrative. They are not interested in assembling all of the facts and making a hardcore effort to understand what the root of the problem is. They just want that preset narrative to drive whatever ambitions they have. Now, I can see some cynical Greek character like Diogenes pointing out to Herodotus that his narrative of a million-man Persian army seems a bit far-fetched. If Herodotus were a modern-day progressive, he would not then lay out Persian army receipts or call up Persian quartermaster accounts or find additional corroborating evidence to prove that the Persians were, in fact, a million people. Instead, he would accuse Diogenes of being too much in the Persian camp. Maybe Diogenes is an unwilling participant in systemic racism against Greeks, or maybe he's just simply anti-Greek, leveling the same type of accusations that are made against black conservatives today, for example. When Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina questioned whether the U.S. was truly a racist nation, he was labeled a, quote, Uncle Tim, unquote, for not being sufficiently aware of the issues. Or when a brilliant writer like Thomas Sowell lays out his arguments, they're rarely attacked on face value, but instead on the personal motives or naivete of Sowell himself. Per the classist argument, where Jeff Bezos has all the wealth and no one else does, the United States spends $75 billion on sports entertainment and $46 billion on pet food. Now, are these facts in and of themselves a note that we are a prosperous nation and that given Jeff Bezos does not own 5,000 dogs, that the wealth is actually spread around? No. A conservative historian would find additional facts, and maybe some of these facts might change the narrative. But it is that pursuit, not just of a single face, but a whole lot of facts relevant to the record that is the heart of the detective work of the conservative historian. Now, on this podcast, I often do cite individual examples. I have done it above by comparing just two ancient historians, Herodotus and Thucydides. Much scholarly work runs to the tens of thousands of words, 
And I could lace additional examples citing the work, strong and weak, of the likes of Cassius Dial, Pliny, Plutarch, Livy, and on and on. I will have to ask for your indulgence that when I cite specific examples and not a whole bunch, it is not due to the lack of scholarship in my work nor carelessness, but rather a nod to the core goal of this podcast. When I am citing specific examples, it's actually a representation of 20 years of scholarship into all kinds of history. But if the role of a conservative historian is as a a dogged detective, the role of this podcast is to provide a view of history that is being subsumed for ideological purposes. I'm trying to represent a counterpoint to the prevailing wisdom of history departments today. Plus, I also hope that this has a modicum of entertainment. I mean, I could do hours and hours on these podcasts representing my totality of scholarship, but neither do I have that kind of time, and I suspect you don't have that kind of patience. Hearing this voice for 30 minutes? Sure. Two hours? Not so much. Physics is the story of the makeup of the universe, and biology that of the human body. But history is our story, the story of humanity since we began writing things down. And for me, there is little that is more interesting, even if it is just 30 minutes at a time. This is Bell Avis. I hope you've enjoyed this latest conservative historian podcast. Thanks for listening.